Well, there it is from Les Miserables. Do you hear the people sing? Sung by the people as part of the Hong Kong pro-democracy protest movement of 2019. It wasn't just the song of the movement sung in occupations and rallies and marches by millions of Hong Kongers last year. It's also the first song I thought of when I saw the feature speech today for the first time. Brian Leung's speech as the unmasked protester standing up on a desk in the Legislative Council on the 1st of July last year and taking off his mask and risking his personal life and liberty for the sake of a cause. It was a brilliant speech and a brave speech, like the student leader Enjolras' character in Les Mis, Brian Leung, knew the authorities were coming, but he stood up and he made the speech anyway. And this is an amazing interview and a great episode. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak over. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Speakola with Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome to this, the 10th episode of the Speakola podcast. I am Tony Wilson and we've had some amazing guests so far. We've had Pulitzer Prize winners. We've had Helpman Award winners. We've had Peabody Award winners. We've had politicians. We've had commencement speakers. We've had historians and we've had eulogists. But today's feature speech is special for the fact that the stakes involved, someone who is willing to stand up on a desk in the Legislative Council of Hong Kong on July the 1st last year and risk his life for the principles he believed in. All the protesters who stormed the LegCo building in Hong Kong on that fateful day were wearing masks, but it was Brian Leung who removed his mask and made a speech that went around the world in the minutes and hours that followed. Brian Leung is the feature interviewee for this episode of the Speak Ola podcast, and his speech will be played in its entirety, both in Cantonese and then subsequently with an English overdub. But before we get to Brian, I thought as a matter of background, I'd interview an author who's written on the Hong Kong democracy movement. He is Anthony Dapparan. He lives in Hong Kong. He's a lawyer there. And he actually did his law degree with me in the early 90s. But his books are fantastic. They're acclaimed. One of them, City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong, has been released just this year. So this initial interview with Ant is like a background briefing. So if you know a lot about Hong Kong, you might skip forward 23 minutes and listen to the interview with Brian. But if you want to know from a really great explainer what's going on, let's listen to Ant. Speakola. Well, my feature speech this week is Brian Leung's speech as the unmasked protester at the storming of the Hong Kong Legislative Council. 
And the man who put me onto that speech is an old law school friend of mine. He's now a resident of Hong Kong and he is an author and he's documented the protest movement over there with his most recent book, City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. Anthony Dapparan, thank you so much for joining me, mate. It's a pleasure to be with you, Tony. Well, tell us a little bit about this speech. How did it come to your attention? Yeah, so this occurred in the course of the the protest movement last year in in Hong Kong. The movement began uh, early June when the Hong Kong government was proposing to introduce a law that would enable criminal uh, suspects to be extradited from Hong Kong and to face trial in mainland Chinese courts. And that was the first time that there would be a a breach in this firewall between uh, the two legal systems under the one country, two systems under which Hong Kong was returned to Chinese rule. Uh, Hong Kong courts and the Hong Kong legal system have been separate from the mainland. But this was going to open up a portal, if you will, that might enable people to be extradited from Hong Kong to the mainland. And this faced a a huge amount of opposition among the community, both among pro-democracy people and and, and people, uh, human rights activists and people who generally opposed the government, but also among pro-government people, such as uh, pro-Beijing business people who spent a lot of time in the mainland and suddenly saw uh, the risk that they might be whisked off uh, due to business disputes and corruption charges and those sorts of things. And so at the beginning of June, as the government was preparing to bring this uh, this new law to the Legislative Council, on two successive weekends, first a million people and then two million people marched on the streets to express their opposition to the law. In another protest that same week, protesters managed to blockade the Legislative Council building to stop the legislators meeting uh, so that they weren't able to begin debate on the bill. And so by mid-June, the government said they were pausing work on this very controversial law, but they still hadn't announced that they were going to fully fully withdraw it. And there'd been an ongoing series of, of weekly peaceful protests continuing to push for the government to withdraw this law. Uh, and that brought us to the 1st of July. Now, the 1st of July is the anniversary of the handover of, of Hong Kong from Britain to uh, mainland China. And every year on the 1st of July, uh, there's been a traditional protest march. It's it's a public holiday and, and people have traditionally taken to the streets to protest uh, in favor of democracy, increased democracy in Hong Kong against the government, um, and also in support of a whole range of, of causes. It's sort of an annual protest day. So you see people there marching in support of everything from LGBTQ rights to elderly rights to environmental causes to press freedom to animal rights and all, all, all sorts of causes are, are protested on that day. But on this 1st of July, of course, there was the added issue of the extradition bill and a number of other demands that had arisen in the course of the, the ongoing protests, including demands to investigate police uh, brutality, police violence and use of force, uh, as well as demands for increased democracy that had become part of that movement. Is this the Umbrella Movement? No, so the Umbrella Movement was back in 2014. So a similar cause, the, the Umbrella Movement in 2014 was aimed at pushing for uh, universal suffrage for election of the head of the Hong Kong government, the chief executive. Uh, and so that movement began in September 2014 and wound up in uh, at the end of 2014. And that was also known as the Occupy Central Movement, where protesters occupied the streets of Hong Kong for around three months um, in, in trying to push for democratic reform, which was ultimately um, they did not achieve. But that, that, so that was a different movement. But this movement really picked up on the umbrella movement and continued it and continued to pick, pick, push for some of the same causes. And so what happened on this, on this day of protest? 
Right. So 1st of July last year came in the, the first month or two of this ongoing protest movement. So we had a protest movement pushing for withdrawal of the extradition bill and, and increased democratization and absolutely no reaction from the government. The government had not withdrawn the extradition bill, notwithstanding a million and then two million people in the streets. They had refused to engage with the protesters at all or engage in any kind of dialogue or show any signs of compromise. And so the sense of frustration was beginning to build among the protesters in the sense of what do we have to do to to get the attention of this government and get them to listen to us. So on the 1st of July, the the annual day of protest, again, hundreds of thousands of people came out onto the streets and and marched uh, along the traditional protest route from uh, Victoria Park in Causeway Bay towards Central. Now, at the end of that march, uh, late in the afternoon, whereas some people got on the subway system and went home, others, and in particular many of the, the younger, more militant protesters, gathered again around the Legislative Council building in Admiralty. And they began to lay siege to the building, and it soon became apparent that they were attempting to uh, to break into the building. Uh, they did things like dismantle nearby traffic barriers and, and refashion them into, into battering rams to, to batter against the, the reinforced glass windows. They got trolleys and sort of ran them into the windows to try and break them down and try and break down the doors. And it was, it was a sustained attempt to, to break into the, the, the legislative chamber. At first, the, the police were holding a line uh, around the edge of the building. And this wasn't the first time that protesters had attempted to storm the legislative council, but always the police had held very firmly and, and, and never allowed them inside. But for some reason, paradoxically, we, we, we still really don't know the reason. Um, the police withdrew that afternoon. They completely withdrew, left the building and, and essentially left it to, to the protesters. Um, and over several hours of, of a sustained uh, attack on the building, eventually, uh, uh, late in the evening, the protesters succeeded in, in, in getting through the the, the reinforced glass and, and the steel barriers and, and breaking into the Legislative Council building. And so they, they got inside and hundreds of protesters streamed inside the, the, the now empty building. The police had abandoned the building. And they proceeded over several hours to uh, engage in various acts of, of protest and, and vandalism, uh, and, but also symbolic vandalism inside the building. Now, I think it's something that's important to bear in mind about the nature of the Legislative Council itself, Hong Kong's legislature, when you to understand what what happened there, the legislature in Hong Kong is is very is heavily gerrymandered. It's not a completely democratic legislature, so only half the representatives are selected by elected by means of universal suffrage from across the community. The other half are chosen by uh, small special interest groups. So we have, they're called functional constituencies, and there are different special interest groups dedicated to different professions, such as the accountants, the uh, lawyers, um, uh, the property industry, and so on, um, as well as to different industry groups, such as the tourism industry, the fisheries, uh, and, and rural clan groups as well. And the idea is that these functional constituencies are, tend to be pro-business and, and pro-government and pro-Beijing. So through this um, rigged election system, it ensures that, that, that Beijing will always control the Legislative Council. 
And in recent years, there'd been a number of occasions where the government had forced through laws using its its, its pro-government majority with the built-in gerrymander that were against the interests of the community and, and uh, things that the community didn't want. And the extradition bill was going to be the latest of these. And if it wasn't for the protesters having blockaded the building and, and forcing the, the government to abandon the meeting, that also would have been pushed through. So the, the, the Legislative Council itself has a, there's a great deal of political symbolism around it being effectively a, a political tool that's used to m- manipulate the governance of Hong Kong and, and is sort of an anti, anti-democratic legislature in Hong Kong. And so, and so you're saying that any acts of vandalism within that chamber, that's an act of vandalism not against what we might perceive as Hong Kong democracy, but against the influence of Beijing. Absolutely, yes. And so the acts that they undertook when they went inside that chamber were specifically targeted accordingly. They, for example, graffitied and defaced the seats where the pro-Beijing representatives sat. They painted, they they spray painted uh, anti-government pro-democracy slogans. They they displayed um, sort of funeral-style portraits of the chief executive and other senior ministers of Hong Kong who had, who had been regarded as being anti-democratic. And importantly, they, there were things that they didn't do. So, for example, they, they didn't touch the books in the library and there was, they posted a, a sign outside the library saying, you know, please respect the books and don't touch them. When they took cans of soft drink from the fridges, they left money to pay for the cans of soft drink that they took. So it, it was a very carefully targeted and symbolic act when they went inside that building and, and, and carried out various acts of vandalism. It wasn't just wanton destruction. And so the question then became, as the protests were in there over several hours, what would they do next? They had succeeded in breaching this building that um, so was so symbolic of Beijing's rule over Hong Kong and, and which for years they'd never been able to get inside. And the question was now, what do they do? Now, there was a, another bit of historical background there, which is in early 2014 in Taiwan, uh, when the then Beijing-leaning government was seeking to introduce um, a new trade deal with the mainland, students in Taiwan occupied the legislature in Taipei in in a movement that was called the Sunflower Movement. And and that was a similar situation when hundreds of of student protesters stormed the legislative building there in Taipei and were successful, I think, in ultimately uh, forcing the government to change its path on that trade deal with the mainland. So there was this sort of historical background in the back of people's minds. And so when the protesters finally broke into the Legislative Council in Hong Kong on the 1st of July, the question was, what do they do? And with uh, all the the media present and people filming and live streaming, one protester, uh, Brian Leung, stood up uh, on a table in the middle of the chamber and began to make a speech uh, trying to uh, rally the crowds to to get them to come in and support the protesters and to, to occupy the Legislative Council. And to be able to speak clearly, he also removed his mask and therefore revealed his identity to the TV cameras. And of course, that was then exposing him to significant legal risk by exposing his face and his identity uh, effectively on live TV as he, as he gave this speech inside the legislative chamber that night. And it's a stirring speech, isn't it? He's a, a man who could command a, a room and, in fact, uh, very much belonged in a legislative council in, in, in maybe in a different era. He was able to project... Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a very emotional speech, and it's really the 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 was the emotional climax of that that very turbulent night, and it really, in a way, gave 
a focus to what had happened that night. And and even though ultimately he wasn't successful in encouraging people to, to actually stay and occupy the chamber, and in the end, uh, when the news came in that the police were coming in and preparing to use force to clear the building, everyone eventually, in, in some very emotional scenes, eventually abandoned abandoned the uh, the building together and, and fled into the night. His speech and the way that he framed the protesters' cause helped to give context to what had happened and ensured that that night's events was seen as its as a symbolic act of protest and and not merely as a, as an act of, of wanton vandalism. And so it gave it gave focus and context and 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 a great deal of um, emotional resonance to what had happened that night. And what about the dissolution of the protest? You say it was quite an emotional thing to watch and, and the scenes. Um, were these people immediately re- arrested or were they allowed to um, melt into the night? Yeah, so one of the one of the key strategies of the protest movement last year was the so-called be water strategy that instead of staying in one place and occupying a fixed space as the as the protesters did in the umbrella movement of 2014 and inspired by the occupy wall, wall street protests of, of 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 a few years earlier the protesters in hong kong last year adopted this bruce lee inspired be water strategy where they would move fluidly from location to location and cause a disruption perhaps close down a facility but then move on before police could contain and arrest them and so that was one very very successful strategy that the protesters used last year. Another key principle that they had was the uh, what's being called the no splitting principle, which was that uh, the protesters should all stick together. And regardless of what people might have felt about the actions of particular individuals or the actions of particular factions, they wouldn't let themselves be drawn into infighting, but would all support each other and stick together no matter what and wouldn't split off into factions. And so those two things sort of came together at the dissolution of that legislative council protest that night, uh, when the police were coming and, and the, 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 the weight of popular opinion suggested that it didn't make sense to stay and try and occupy, the protesters followed this be water strategy and, and dispersed very quickly and were able to to evade capture before the police arrived and, and, and able to make it back home. Uh, but not only that, they did it together. There was this sort of no splitting principle. And that's what led to these very emotional scenes as protesters began to leave the Legislative Council building. Uh, there were a few protesters who were trying to stay and, and were sort of making a stand and saying, I don't care whether you other people go, well, I'm going to stay and, and, and sort of go down with the ship and I'll, I'll give up my life if I have to. But the other protesters rallied around and said, no, we're, we have to go together. Uh, we have to we have to leave together. We're not going to leave. No one's going to be left behind. And, and one or two people were sort of protesters were physically carried out by their fellow protesters. And that's what I think was really a a very emotional scene where you saw people calling out, we have to, we have to leave together, leave together and support each other and and quite emotional scenes as, as as they left. Um, But so people I don't think were arrested that night, but certainly people have been arrested subsequently based on uh, video evidence and, uh, and so on and so forth. So there've already been a number of arrests um, for people who were involved in that, in that, um, in that break in that night. And the footage went around the world, including here in Australia. And obviously, Brian Leung would have been a recognisable face as, as the man who removed his mask. Did other people remove his mask or was he the, the sole protester to effectively identify himself that night? 
you know, he, he was the only one that removed their mask that night. Um, and indeed, uh, as he did it, uh, the people around him said, what are you doing? You know, put, put your mask back on. You, everyone can see your face. But um, he, he persisted and, 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 and tore it off and, and made, that, made that very public stand. And that was a great act of bravery, obviously. But uh, no, no one else did that, only him. And so, and so what happened to Brian? I mean, I'm about to speak to him tomorrow at his home in Seattle. He's at the University of Washington. But, but what happened? They, they didn't arrest him and they didn't um, hurt him. No, I mean, he, he, he's a graduate student in the US. So he, he shortly thereafter, as I understand it, left Hong Kong and went back to the US to, to pursue his studies before the police were able to put out a warrant for his arrest. So he was able to, to safely leave Hong Kong. But I, I think it's now not, certainly not safe for him to, re- to return. And, and if he returned at this point, he would almost certainly face arrest for the events of that night. Um, and just so you know what the stakes are, uh, people who were involved in that in that particular protest action and, and others similar to that have been charged with rioting in Hong Kong. The bar for rioting is quite low. If you're involved in an, an unauthorized protest that involves any kind of a breach of the peace, uh, that uh, is rioting, and the jail sentence is up to 10 years. So at this stage, if, if Brian returned to Hong Kong, I think it's highly likely that he would face arrest and, and be charged with rioting, and potentially, if he was found guilty, uh, would face a, up to a 10-year prison sentence. And where is the status of that extradition law? Is, is there any chance of him being taken to Beijing? Well, the extradition law never made it through, but uh, another even worse alternative came to pass. So uh, earlier this year, the Chinese government announced they were going to introduce a new national security law for Hong Kong. Uh, This was something that wasn't uh, passed by the Hong Kong legislature. It was passed by the legislature in Beijing and imposed directly on Hong Kong from above. It includes a number of new criminal offences in Hong Kong, uh, including secession, subversion, terrorism-related offences and colluding with foreign forces. The the law also provides that in serious cases, people might be taken from Hong Kong and face investigation and prosecution in the mainland. So it is the extradition bill plus a lot of things on top of that. And the, the criminal offences have been very carefully defined in that new law to cover pretty much anything that any protester did last year. Uh, so all the various acts of protest, um, the various acts of, of, of vandalism and disruption to public transport and public facilities, even the acts of nonviolent protest and support for other protesters, such as donating funds, equipment, providing transport, and those sorts of things to protesters um, are all potentially offences under this new law. So it's a very draconian, uh, wide-sweeping law, um, and that is certainly something that's now being used against um, protesters and activists in Hong Kong and is a tool that um, the government can use to suppress dissent in the future. So that's another thing that, uh, that, that, that certainly uh, Brian would potentially face if he, if he returned to Hong Kong. N- not only that, but the new national security law also has um, extraterritorial application. And so anyone in, involved in these sorts of offences while outside Hong Kong potentially ha- is guilty of an offence under this new law. So if Brian and other people, while they are overseas, engage in acts um, lobbying for uh, things like Hong Kong independence, lobbying for the overthrow of the Chinese government, lobbying foreign governments for sanctions against Hong Kong or China. All these things are things that, that, that the authorities here are now saying are illegal under the new national security law, and they will seek to uh, arrest people who engage in those activities, even while they're overseas. Has it taken the heat out of the protest movement? I mean, it was it was depicted last year as this 
I guess, vibrant and colourful and active thing. Is is Hong Kong relatively flat at the moment? Yes, certainly it is. It's perhaps a combination, of course, of of COVID as well as the national security law. COVID and and various social distancing restrictions and, and people's natural inclination to avoid gathering in large numbers in public places had already reduced the number and scale of protests. But this national security law added the additional element of of outright fear and intimidation. And it's led to things like people taking down pro-democracy posters from their storefronts. Um, uh, And certainly people are less willing to speak out, less willing to speak to the media. I think you'd find it very challenging, for example, to find local voices in Hong Kong now willing to speak to to you or to other international media outlets uh, about what's been happening in Hong Kong. And so there is this this climate of fear. But I mean, I, I feel that that's not the end of the story. Uh, given that the the underlying political issues have, have not been resolved, none of the things that the protesters were demanding last year uh, have uh, have been given to them. And if anything, the situation's even worse than it was. And, and this anxiety over Hong Kong's autonomy and Beijing's influence over Hong Kong can only have increased with the national security law and the events that have occurred since last year. And so the question is really, in what form will it return? Certainly, I think the protest movement will return in, in some new form and manifest in some way. And, and I think it's just a question of time. But in the meantime, yes, Hong Kong is a very flat, you could even say a fairly depressed place at the moment, uh, given the, the events of this year. And, and where does that leave you? I mean, you've, you've written City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. Um, you're a chronicler of the protests. I'm sure you're perceived as being on the side of the protesters rather than on the side of the Beijing government. Um, you're a lawyer over there in Hong Kong. Is there is there personal risk involved for you? Uh, look, I'm, I'm certainly... Um, uh, I'm to think of the best way to answer this. Um, <laughs> um so, certainly, I'm, I'm, I'm very careful and alert to uh, any signs that I might be uh, courting trouble. I mean, I do think that um, I'm not a, a politician or, or an activist in that sense. Um, and while my, my sympathies, where my sympathies lie is very clear, I continue to be primarily a, a writer and a commentator and an analyst. And I would like to think that the, the various guarantees of, of freedom of expression in, in Hong Kong's constitution, the basic law, would uh, permit me to continue to do that. Uh, and I, I don't think that I'm necessarily the kind of person that, that the authorities are, are worried about. Uh, but um, certainly, I've, uh, there's, there's a risk is there, and I'm, and I'm keeping an eye on, on how things develop. Uh, things like the, uh, the, the two Australian journalists who recently had to, to flee the mainland and return to Australia is something that I pay attention to. And um, yeah, uh, hopefully it doesn't come to that. And hopefully Hong Kong can continue to be a place where people can at least speak freely and express views, which is the place that it has always been. Um, and it'd be, it'd, be a, it'd be sad, it'd be a great loss if, if Hong Kong could no longer be that place. Well, it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend anyone who's interested in what's going on in Hong Kong, City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong, and a few years earlier, uh, City of Protest, another excellent book on the political situation in Hong Kong. And there's quite a bit in there about Brian Lung's speech too, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. The The book chronicles in quite a great deal of detail all of the events of last year, as well as the, the historical context and some of the cultural context to help those events make sense. Um, so there is a chapter on on the events of the 1st of July and the storming of the Legislative Council, uh, as well as some, some details on, on the context there. And in 25 years, do you think Hong Kong will be part of China? 
I I think it's uh, how to how to best put it. Look, whatever happens in in Hong Kong ultimately is decided in Beijing, and so in twenty five years time, Hong Kong will be closer to the rest of China, whatever whatever China looks like at that time. Uh, but things change quickly in China, so it's difficult to predict what China and what Hong Kong will look like by then. But uh, there's certainly no escaping the fact that, that Hong Kong is, is a part of China and it, uh, it its fortunes go wherever the fortunes of China as a whole go. Well, thanks so much for chatting to us, Ant. I, I can't wait to speak to Brian. And I think it's uh, – thank you so much for putting me onto this speech. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a pleasure. It's a great great to talk to you. And I, yeah. One way you can share in the love of great speeches is to become a subscriber to the Speakola newsletter. I write a newsletter about every two or three weeks and include selections of great speeches and transcripts, often grouped according to theme. And so if you go to speakola.com, you'll be prompted to sign up for the newsletter. And indeed, there's a sign-up form on most of the speech pages on the site. The podcast's going really well. Thank you all for listening. I'd love you to subscribe. I'd also love you to tell someone that you're enjoying the podcast or send me an email, tony at tonywilson.com.au. And I'd also like to say that our supporter on this podcast is Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados. With Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados, they look good on the outside and they are perfect in the middle. Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados want to inspire you to love their avocados as much as they do. And these messages are very much about just spreading the love of avocados. Have you noticed that I never give you any way of buying some? Even if you go to their website at greenskinavocados.com.au, you'll find more recipes there and more tips like the ripeness button, the best way to test the ripeness of an avocado, then you will see any sort of sales pitch. So enjoy green skin and purple skin avocados, love avocados and share the love of avocados as we are doing here on the Speak Ola podcast. Well, we've heard from Anthony Dapparan about the background to the speech and now it's a great pleasure to speak to Brian Leung himself. Brian, are you there? Yep. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. Well, it was an amazing moment, Brian. I presume a life-changing one for you. Um, mm. Can you tell us a little bit about your life? Um, where were you born? Were you born in Hong Kong? Yep. Uh, I was born in Hong Kong in 1994, where Hong Kong was still in the British colonial era. And I do not have a lot of vivid memory about the colonial era, but I grew up, you know, uh, when I, you know, started to be more knowledgeable. It was Hong Kong is already under the sovereignty of China. So we are basically educated to be a Chinese, right? So uh, my background, uh, my upbringing is pretty humble. I grew up in uh, government subsidized housing. Uh, we went to public school and I have the fortune to go to one of the best universities uh, in Hong Kong, which is University of Hong Kong. And my teenage and uh, my formative year uh, and memory about uh, Hong Kong is really how vivid the civil society is, right? We think about uh, started, uh, starting in 2008 to 2012, uh, we witnessed a, a wave of social movement that are led by the young generations, right? So I pretty much grew up in an era where civil society was extremely 
vibrant, uh, active. Uh, we think that democratization is going to come very soon. We aspire to it. And so, you know, it was full of hope, full of debate and full of aspiration towards future. And was that encouraged by your parents? Were they quite active themselves? Were, were they protesters? Uh, not really. Again, my, my background, I grew up in a very humble family. So my parents have to have to mix and meet. So they have to work extremely hard. Much like very, uh, a lot of Hong Kong people, their mentality was extremely pragmatic towards politics. Basically, they were indifferent. Uh, they do not care about politics. They think that, you know, make a good life, earn a living is much more important than caring about politics, right? So pretty much I think our generation is a, is a protest against some of this uh, previous generation's mentality where they think uh, conservatism and, you know, uh, is the way of life. And uh, But we pretty much question everything around us, right? We question about authority, we question about Chinese rule, we question about the authoritarianism we witness, right? So, yeah, I think there is a some difference between my at least my generation and my parents did you question chinese rule growing up did you, did you feel there was something wrong in hong kong right i think hong kong people go through a very complex uh, process of questioning their identity right we grew up uh, in a colonial era where we enjoy a lot of civil liberty or a very high quality legal system we aspire democracy, we and then our sovereignty is transferred to China, right? And then we do not initially think that there is an inherent problem in being educated as a Chinese, right? Oh, uh, China is growing, you know, the economy is huge. Uh, we also have the uh, 2008 Olympic success, right? But I think afterwards, Hong Kong people started to question their national identity in the exact same period when China also uh, have gone through a series of uh, really egregious news, such as you know Liu Xiaobo being in prison in 2008, a series of uh, very low quality infrastructure project in China being exposed, uh, milk powder incident in 2008. Right. So I think Hong Kong people go through a very complex struggle internally, where on the one hand they witness the the, the materialistic. Uh, uh, achievement of the so-called modern nation, right? Uh, but on the other hand, it also come into serious conflict, especially in the value realm, right? Uh, that they feel like the modern nation do not really respect rule of law, do not really respect human rights, do not really aspire towards democracy. And I think that conflict is uh, inherent in every Hong Konger where they ask themselves, why do I have to obey the nation if, if our value are so in in stark contrast with one another right so to me my i was again educated by the you know the school system to be a chinese right we sing the anthem we raise a flag but you know when i started to enter college i started to very seriously question whether it's just a brainwashing project that demands our allegiance but without reciprocating the respect that we as citizens deserve right so i think in, in my college i pretty much realize, you know, Chinese as a nationalist project, you know, is nothing but a political project to, you know, solicit obedience and almost question obedience from the citizens, right? And so did, did you become very active immediately at college? What was, what's your university history? I earned my bachelor in the University of Hong Kong. And again, it was an era where 
going into university, especially a lot of uh, uh, young students would uh, become the officers of student unions, right? And the student unions are basically a network of activists forging organization with one another, mobilizing students, mobilizing the, the broader society into political activism, right? So I think student unions, especially from the universities, plays a huge role in the past movement you observe from the 2014 umbrella movement to the current uh, 2019, right? They, they play a huge role in mobilizing people. So again, when you enter university, you met seniors who are extremely brilliant, uh, not only inside, but they are leaders of movement outside, right? So you will uh, inevitably become infected with the uh, spirit and the energy of uh, youth-led movement in that area. So tell us about the 2019 protests. What what were you protesting? Was there a specific goal in mind or was it a general goal of democracy? Right. Uh, the 2019 movement broke out because uh, the government uh, proposed an uh, uh, amendment to the extradition bill that allowed Hong Kong people to be extradited back to China, right? And uh, it spurred a huge controversy, uh, especially because uh, in China there is no sound legal system and there is no respect for human rights, right? So Hong Kong people uh, really fear that it's just a pretest for extraditing not normal defendant, right, but political dissident uh, back to China and create certain uh, censorship and political fear among the citizens, right? So the initial focus of the movement is really about striking down that extradition bill. Uh, but later on, especially after the July 1st incident where I was uh, involved, people realized that it, it was a structural problem, right? The reason why the Hong Kong government had, uh, had been able to be so insistent and basically disregard the uh, the population opinions is exactly because the system is not democratic, right? So I think uh, the movement basically evolved from uh, a movement that focused on single bill to a much more structural and much more comprehensive movement that uh, cries for democracy and against Beijing uh, authoritarian control. So tell us about July 1st. Um, was it the culmination of weeks of protest? What, what were the events leading up to that day? Right. Uh, you know, there are several major uh, episodes of the movement in the, especially the early critical period, right? You have June 9 and June 12. These are the two uh, major clashes between protesters and the police in the Hong Kong island that leads to millions of people took to the street. And then, you know, uh, in terms, uh, and June 18, you have 2 million people uh, very peacefully marching in Hong Kong island, right? But given uh, those major clashes and uh, major uh, peaceful rallies, the Hong Kong government has been uh, very adamant about not revoking the extradition bill, right? So people have been extremely furious in terms of how uh, irresponsible the government has been, right? So July 1st is really the culmination of that frustration and anger. And I also want to mention uh, during the early June, uh, there are several young people who try to uh, protest by ending their own life. And I think the uh, the appearance of uh, several martyrs, as a protester, uh, try to honor them, right? They call them martyrs, uh, really add a certain emotional uh, 
resonance among the protesters, right? That they feel very deeply about uh, the city. They feel very deeply about the loss they, uh, you know, as a community have gone through. They feel very deeply about the sacrifice that several young people have paid, have made. And so I think it all, July 1st is really about the combination of the whole movement, but also emotionally, it was an explosion of frustration and anger towards the government. Were you a major organizer of the protest? Would you say you were a leader? No, uh, it was uh, the whole movement has been called uh, decentralized movement uh, and a leaderless movement, right? So it has been extremely horizontal in the sense normal citizens could use a digital platform to initiate a campaign or initiate uh, an action, right? So July 1st is, is the same in the sense that it's extremely this. Uh, decentralized, right? There is no organizing committee behind the whole incident, right? So people gather around the uh, the legislative complex, which is the main site of the protest, right? They gather around the legislative complex, and then they formulate the idea that you know we have to storm the electrical today, right? And you say that it's a, a very democratic and fluid methods of of calling people together. Were you one who felt confident enough to send send emails or make messages? Were you sort of regarded as amongst the group of active activists, I guess? Well, uh, my major involvement in Hong Kong social movement started with uh, Umbrella Movement, right? Where I I was not a lead uh, in the organizing committee of the Umbrella Movement, right? But I kind of wrote a lot of commentary around Umbrella Movement, especially uh, in terms of identity politics, right? So people regard me as one of the quote-unquote localist camp, right? You know, the idea that Hong Kong as a city should uh, resist Chinese influence uh, culturally, politically, and defend our Hong Kong identity, right? So this is the basic uh, uh, kind of principle of the localist camp. So people regard me as a student writer, as a commentators that uh, that wrote on Hong Kong and speak uh, on Hong Kong issue very actively, right? So I think my, my involvement was known on that maybe intellectual end rather than, you know, being a leader in an organizational or physical sense, right? So uh, people, people know who I am before the July 1st uh, incident broke out, but afterwards, I think people recognize that, oh, he was involved in the civil society for a while. You mentioned briefly that the decision was made to storm the LegCo building. How did that happen? What, what happened next? What I witnessed is basically uh, starting in the morning, uh, a lot of protesters tried to gather around the electricity complex, right? And in very early morning, they make a decision that we have to kind of crack the window and we have to basically enter the lecture and occupy it, right? But it has been a, basically a full day of labor where they try to crack the door and the windows. They basically start uh, in the morning. It, it was not until like really late evening, like seven or eight, PM that all the doors and windows have been cracked, right? And at that moment, all people on the ground knew that we, there is no way of turning back, right? We have to make a gesture and we have to seize the moment and then uh, occupy the electrical, right? So uh, here, uh, I, I, I enter into the electrical with all the protesters, right? But I think the, the, the dilemma is really that Exactly, because the movement was uh, so decentralized, there was no uh, plan for what the action uh, should be next, right? So there is no consensus around, okay, what should be the next step, right? Should we occupy it for a long period of time? Should we 
occupied it and make a speech and then leave. Um, what's the plan, right? So what I sense inside the legislative council and chamber is really the, the sense of confusions, right? Like what should we do next, right? And exactly because there is, uh, is no leader or a central organ, right? So at that, at that moment, I feel like uh, the momentum is kind of acting against us, where protesters are, are leaving the legislative, legislative council, right? And I fear that if we left the scene, uh, if we left the electrical uh, just like that, without making any political demand or if, uh, without making any justification of our action on that night, I think it will be fatal to our whole movement, right? Where we will be accused of uh, simply as uh, rioters, we will be accused of acting irrationally, we will be accused by the government, especially as uh, people who only make troubles without making any demands, right? So I think at that night, I, I, I stood up exactly because I feel there should be some direction of the whole action, right? We feel like we should make a political statement. We feel like we should explicitly uh, stated our demand, we should actually occupy the electrical, right? So that was the motivation for me to stand up and, and be, uh, uh, be publicly recognized on that night. Well, it was an incredible speech and a powerful speech. Can you give us an idea of the timeline in the LegCo? Were, were you there for quite a long time before you made that decision to stand up? Uh, again, everything happened in the moment, right? I would say we enter into the electrical at around nine o'clock and we like people as i described kind of wander around they look around they survey the whole complex for about an hour right uh, and you know 10 o'clock approaches and there are a lot of rumors that the police is gonna actually come very soon so people are uh, naturally very afraid and many of them are leaving right so by almost i would say 10 30 to 11 p.m I recognized more journalists than I could recognize a protester, right? The idea is like uh, there are even more journalists than the number of protesters inside the chamber, right? So we know for, for a fact that, you know, the momentum was losing, right? So, you know, it's very urgent for us to make a decision about whether we should occup- continue to occupy, whether we should make a gesture, whether we should make a speech and political statement, or, or whether should we leave, right? So everything happened within, you know, a split second. And to me, uh, uh, the time is, appro- uh, you know, the deadline is really approaching, uh, the momentum is working against us. Uh, I, I feel like uh, there is a very genuine need to call for solidarity, right? I, the, the, the single biggest fear for me is uh, the internal division among the protesters, right? You know, the whole incident was very controversial, right? Not many people agree initially with what we're doing. They feel like it's a radical act that would not buy sympathy from the you know, broader uh, Hong Kong people, right? So it was a very controversial act. And especially uh, given how controversial it is, I think there is a very genuine need to call for solidarity at that time, right? Uh, so the speech uh, that I make uh, was really about, you know, calling for solidarity, right? At that point, we know that there is no turning back. There is no room for us to split among ourselves. We want to call for solidarity among the protesters and call for outside support, right? Even for those who are not inside the legislative chamber, I want you to stand with us uh, emotionally. I want you to stand with us, you know, in your spirit that you would understand where we are coming from, right? So I think, again, you know, this, the, the sense of urgency really spurred me to, uh, to make that speech. Uh, I, I think it's like uh, at around 10.30. 
did you speak to anyone before you stood up? Did you make eye contact with someone? Did you say, this is my moment, I can do this? Um, how did it fall to you? Well, I, basically, I, I was witnessing people kind of, again, wandering around, running around, leaving the chamber. You know, people started to gather inside the chamber, looking at one another, right? To me, I know that there, someone have to step up and, step up and you know, uh, give the direction to the crowd, right? So uh, I seized the moment and just stood up and feel like, you know, it's now or never, right? We have already mixed so much. Uh, and we make it possible for us to enter into the latch call, there would be consequences, right? But who cares? It's now or never. You know, you cannot step back from now on, right? Otherwise, the movement will basically crumble from within, right? So basically, I, s I seize the moment, I speak to the crowd, I speak to the people who are outside because there are so many journalists around me, and I know that, you know, the, the speech and whatever I said will be broadcast uh, instantly, right? So. So yeah, it was an extremely, uh, it was a split second decision. It was extremely, you know, spontaneous. And then you have to make the decision about how to project and you obviously decided to remove your mask to make projection easier. Was that a split second decision or did you, did, it, did you calculate this is it? This could be 10 years in prison. This could be life changing, this decision to remove the mask. Right. I, I think actually... Uh, you know, there was two 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 factors in, uh, behind the decision, right? One was uh, a physical one where, you know, it's really hard to speak when you have the mask on, right? You know, there is, you, the crowd cannot hear you, right? So you have to put put off your mask as for the, you know, as, as for that reason that I have to take off the mask. But also, you know, make the uh, a very quick decision that I know people are watching, right? I know people outside the chamber will be watching, right? I knew that while all protesters are kind of like, you know wearing masks right and they are being seen by the outside society as rioter right there has to be some someone who step up and kind of make the message that actually all people inside the pro uh, chamber are human right they were t teenagers they were young people they were protesters just like you right although they, they they might not be able to reveal their face uh, because of you know of protecting their own safety right but behind that face you know we are just hong kong people right there is a face behind every mask right so the idea is really to make a very genuine appeal i would say you know i know that when pulling off my mask and showing my face it adds weight to that appeal right it, it adds uh, a, a, a human face to that appeal that, you know, uh, I really want to call for solidarity at that moment, right? And I want you to know that I'm very serious. I want you to know that uh, many people have paid so much price and uh, I'm willing to be one of them. Uh, so please listen to what I'm saying, right? So again, yeah, I was, I think it was a split second. It was a mix between very pragmatic concern of, you know, I really want to be heard, but also uh, emotionally, I think it would be, con it would connect m more people if I, do that uh, with my face reveal, right? So, so you're up, your mask is off, and now you've got to find the right words. And I, I think you started off with a an appeal that people stay, um, that the occupation should continue. Was that kind of the the main dividing topic? Were people were there the stayers and the leavers? It was kind of um, also to grab people to your side of the argument. Right, absolutely. Uh, again, uh, the initial stage of the occupation is really 
people don't know what to do, right? They don't even th、uh, think about should we actually occupy it. My my sense at that time was like, you know, there is no way we just enter and then leave, right? There is no way you have to occupy it. You have to escalate the action into、uh, something bigger than you know merely cracking the doors and then entering it and then leaving it, right? So to me, my my sense is we have to occupy it. But of course, as I described, you know, the momentum was losing despite my appeal.、Uh, so yeah,、uh, at that point, I know that you know we actually might have to concede by、uh, reading a statement and then consolidating our demands and make an appeal to the outside world, right? So later on, I basically make another statement that was not written by myself, right? It was written by a group of netizens that consolidated five demands, which are later, you know, widely circulated, right? So yeah, my my first appeal is really about we should、uh, stay here together. If you can come to the legislative count,、uh, council inside, if you can't come to support us outside, right? You can surround us by you know being. Uh, a shield in between us and the police, right? So I was trying to appeal、uh, to the broader protester that you know we have to escalate the action that night. We can't just leave it and just you know just be seen as、uh, you know rioter. Well, that's、um, the next question I had for you, which is that there was damage done to the Ledge Co, and that was always going to be reported strongly by Beijing. What was the damage that was done in there, and were there differing views on what should be happening on that front? Right, I think、uh, the, the the protester have exercised a lot of caution in terms of what kind of violence and what target. Again, the whole night incident have only make、uh, property damage against you know walls and windows and of the entrance of the electrical, and、uh, actually the protester have debate and make a decision within the chamber that we should not damage the archives of the electrical, we should not kind of damage the、uh, computer system of the electrical, and there is even some protester who leave changes after they took a, a kind of a. A can of soda from the refrigerator of the canteen inside the electrical, right? So the idea, I think, the protests are, are extremely conscious about. It's not a riot, an act of riot. It's not an act of you know, looting. It's not an act of, you know, having physical conflict with the police, right? It's really about、uh, taking back the legislative council that you know is supposed to belong to to the people, right? So I think、uh, that night action was extremely focused. Narrow and you know specific, right? It, it's really about the electoral. It's really about the 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 idea behind the legislature, right? Which is democracy, but that has not been fulfilled, right? So I would say, you know, the、uh, the protests are extremely conscious and cautious, right? And then then came the call for togetherness.、Um, we cannot be separated.、Uh, if we are to win, we win it together. If lost, we lose ten years. I guess you look back now. Do do you feel like This was the moment. Do you do you despair for for what the next ten years could mean?、Uh, no, at that point,、uh, at that point, I, I really think about、uh, you know if that actions fails, it, all of us will be arrested, right? You know, everyone involved in the protest will be arrested.、Uh, the people who are involved in the occupation, you know, will be arrested for rioting, right? Which turned out to be true, right? You know, now actually people who Like who are accused of、uh, occupying the electrical、uh, charged with rioting, right? So which carries a maximum sentence of ten years, right? So what I actually foresaw is actually true,、uh, in fact. 
So yeah, at that point, I feel like we already have made so much sacrifices, right? I'm talking about people who are injured in July, June 9, June 12. I'm talking about people who kind of uh, sacrifice their life to protest against the government. Right? So I'm talking about people who don't care about any consequence and just want to uh, occupy the latch code, right? So to me, at that moment, it's really not about thinking in consequentialist term, right? It's not really thinking about the consequence. It's really about how to we maintain the momentum of the movement, right? If it if we if the movement end that night, I think it might take take a decade for us to kind of rebuild that energy and rebuild that、uh, networks, rebuild that、uh, solidarity for another movement to happen on such a wide scale, right? So to me, it's really a now or never, right? It's like if not now, when our only chance that we can we have to seize it, right? So at that point, I don't really think too much about, you know, am I gonna be jailed? Am I gonna be exiled? Right? Am I gonna end up in some places outside of Hong Kong?、Right? So at that point, it, it was extremely kind of in the moment decision, and I don't regret it. I I think、uh, I've made the right decision at that point.、Uh, it was a genuine appeal. I think the movement was successful and lasts for almost half year. Exactly because a lot of unnamed or you know unsung heroes make the right decision in their own moment, right? So they may come up and kind of、uh, save a protester from the hands of the police, and they themselves end up being jailed, right? Being charged, right? And people might make certain decision to confront with the police and also、uh, end up in jail, right? So I think the whole movement is really about the accumulation of. Many many unsung hero, many many unsung protester who make the right choice at that moment, right? So if we all think in consequentialist term, the movement will end very soon, right? There is no hope we can fight against an authoritarian regime, right? So to me, it's really about how do we keep the movement alive? How do we keep every protester safe? How do we、uh, not forget the sacrifice that the people before us have made? And you thought about safety in numbers. You thought that. Tear gas would be too dangerous inside the building, and so that you'd be safe from that.、Um, and you also thought a baton charge wouldn't clear a thousand、yep. people. So if more people came, the, the more people that came, the safer you'd get. And you made that point. Yep, correct. Yep, correct, correct, correct. Yeah. To me, uh, uh, if we become a tiny faction of the protester who stay inside the lateral, we are extremely dangerous, right?、Uh, we will be,、uh, you know, easily targeted by the police, right? But if the whole action Escalate into a broad scale occupation, right? Much like the sunflower movement in Taiwan, where they have received actually a lot of not just young people occupying the electrical、uh, the the, the、uh, legislative yuan, their legislative chamber, right? But you also got、uh, sympathetic protesters who surround the building and try to protest the young people inside from the police outside, right? So to me,、uh, that was one of the、uh, Inspiration inside my head, right? You know, maybe we can turn into a full-scale、uh, occupation movement that night if we can gather enough people support and gather enough sympathy from the broader、uh, pro- protesters, right? In terms of delivery, do, do you have heroes,、uh, protest heroes, people that you've seen deliver these sorts of speeches? I was thinking of Les Misérables a bit, the student leader from there, but、um, have, have you got? Political heroes who you would say you would model yourself on?、Um, 
I think uh, in my era, I really look up to my peers, right? I'm thinking, you know, there is the genealogy of like social movement in Hong Kong is, uh, is again, it was led by a lot of young people, right? We have Joshua Wong in 2012 who led the anti-brainwashing curriculum uh, movement in Hong Kong, right? Uh, where he stood up uh, in the age of 15 or 16, if I remember correctly, right? And then in 2014, we have the sunflower movement led by a group of uh, young t- uh, Taiwanese in Taiwan, right? The Taiwanese movement actually partly inspired the umbrella movement, right? I think I re- remember very vividly at that point, right? Uh, on the night where the umbrella movement was about to break out, I think, you know, the people, young people uh, inside Hong Kong Island are thinking, you know, uh, actually, the Taiwanese uh, young people have done such an amazing occupation movement, right? Maybe we can replicate that inside uh, right here in Hong Kong, right? So uh, we drew some inspiration from the Taiwanese, right? And then later on, I have the privilege to speak to one of the organizer of the Sunflower Movement from Taiwan, right? I would say like, why are you so brave, right? Why why, why were you so, been able to pull off uh, such an extraordinary movement, right? They say, you know, it's because of you guys, you know, the Hong Kong people, right? Uh, we look up to Joshua Wong who led the 2012 movement, right? So to me, the lesson was like, there is a lot of mutual inspiration of what you've done, uh, even without you yourself knowing, right? There are a lot of mutual learning in my peer groups. And it's even a cross-border thing, right? You know, we learn from Taiwan, we learn from, you know, Chinese activists, we learn from one another, right? So to me, it's really about the the peer circle that I'm embedded in. And, you know, I look up to my peers as heroes. Well, I can hear how well you can speak in a second language. And I can't fully appreciate the Cantonese version of your speech. But um, can you tell us a little bit about your love of words and, and writing and uh, your capacity to make a speech like that? Have, have you always been the sort of kid who read and engaged with words? Again, you know, English, as you've said, is like my second language, right? So to me, the way I try to learn and kind of master the language is by reading uh, speeches, right? I remember in my uh, high school, I studied English through a book that was a compilation of all great speeches that was made uh, uh, by, you know, politicians or leaders around the world, right? You know, from Churchill, from Eisenhower, from, you know, Reagan, from Obama. Uh, you know, I also have a, you know, a book that was like, you know, the speeches made by Obama, right? And I remember watching YouTube, like kind of mimicking Obama and trying to pretend that I'm a leader and a politician <laughs> and making speech in English, right? It was, it was my way to kind of hone my language skill. But, you know, also my my, my inspiration and, you know, the my, my source of interest in politics, right? I think making speeches is deeply difficult, right? It was a... Uh, you have to master not only the language, but also emotionally, you have to appeal to people and rationally, you have to make very cogent argument, right? So to me, it's a, art is a skill and I always look up to, you know, great politicians and great leaders before me and drew from their language, drew from their speeches and, you know, internalize them, right? So yeah, I think it was a, uh, it was a pragmatic reason where I have to learn English, but it turns out to be my deep passion about politics in, in later on right well you'd like our website um brian we've got thousands of speeches up there um, including mm. from most of the speakers you just mentioned um mm. in terms of cantonese are there 
are there different speech patterns? Are there different emphases? Or would a lot of the rules of making a great speech in English apply to making a great speech in Cantonese? Well, that's a very difficult question, right? Uh, um, oh, that's, that is a question that I'm not very seriously think about. <laughs> uh, that is, I think in, in English, I think speeches tend to be very poetic, right? There's certain fluency and, and poet-like structure in making a speech in English, right? Where in Chinese, I would say it's slightly more structure, much more formalistic. You have to use a lot of strength and a lot of emphasis. It's really hard for me to put into language, right? I would, I would say Chinese is slightly more rigid than English. I would, I would even say this, right? Slightly more rigid. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question that I've not seriously think about. You know, it comes to me as nature, but uh, yeah, I, I've not really think about how it was different between two. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. That's, a, that's okay. And and standing down, Brian, what was the response? What did people around you say? Did you feel satisfied? Did you feel uh, exhilarated? Well, uh, uh, at that moment, it was like uh, exhilaration. I think it was like uh, really into the moment. You, you know what? I think uh, what I thought about at that time was like my child's dream. Again, I talk about the, the democratic atmosphere of my childhood and teenage year, right? You know, we aspire towards democracy. We think that democracy is around the corner, right? So to me, my childhood dream is really about being a politician, right? It's going to run for office, being a legislature, making speeches in the chamber, not as a protester, but as a legislature, right? So there is a weird coincidence where I realized my dream by not being elected, but by being a protester who kind of stole my way into electrical and stood up in front of the crowd right so there is a weird coincidence or my you know teenage dream to what i'm doing at that moment right so yeah i think it was like an acceleration where you enter into a moment you really enjoyed it you speak from your heart the energy from the movement from the crowd kind of got channel within you and you know it become articulate into words right you feel like you're connected emotionally with the protester right you know it was a it was an extraordinary feeling and i think that's why politics could be you know so excite people very deeply right you know when you talk about values when you appeal to the people when you be a leader among the crowd right that feeling was uh, incomparable and so yeah when i stepped down i think uh Oh boy, what I've just done, but uh, you know, it, it felt it felt really good. It felt really exciting. It felt you know maybe we can make something different, right? Maybe we can pull off a, a occupation uh, that night, right? So again, everything happened in a split second. You know, you basically you feel like you're struck by a calling, right? You know, let's say there is a divine calling coming from above. It strikes you very deeply and kind of motivate you to do something that you don't have time to reflect and sit you know, kind of see through the decision, right? It was very transcendental in some sense, right? It was a transcendental experience. But Brian, the outcome was that the occupation didn't continue. Can you tell us how all that unfolded? Again, you know, um, when I'm, after I make the speech, it basically, 
was unsuccessful, unsuccessful, right? In terms of uh, uh, people actually were not trying to stay because you know people were leaving. They were receiving rumors from the police that you know uh, the police gonna took action very quickly and basically arrest everybody inside the electrical, right? So people uh, naturally try to leave the chamber, right? So I saw people leaving, wandering around without any purpose. And basically by 10.30, we can see the number of protesters inside the chamber was less than the number of journalists, right? So I, I can actually recognize so many journalists, uh, you know, who were my, you know, primary school classmate or high school classmate or university classmate, right? At, at that point, I know that, you know, the occupation might come to a failure where we cannot gather enough people to kind of continue the occupation, right? So at that point, basically, I think there are around 20 protesters who are still inside the chamber. And we basically come into a circle, form a circle, and then we discuss, right, what should we do next? And basically the consensus at that time, right, we cannot, we can no longer occupy the chamber. But before we leave, we have to make a, make a statement, right, uh, that encapsulate what is our demand, encapsulate uh, why are we here, encapsulate what, what, what are we trying to do, right? Uh, so basically at that time we came up uh, actually, it was from uh, online forum, right? It was a hugely popular forum called LIHG. It's like a Hong Kong version of Reddit forum. Mm-hmm. And at that point, there has already been several versions of a statement uh, that have been widely circulated, right? People talk about, hey, people inside the chamber, read this version of statement, right? Read that version of statement. And we basically come up with several statements. We compare and we choose when we make several amendments. And we basically uh, narrow down to one statement that we feel like capture everything we want to say right so it was the five uh, the, the statement contains the five demands that become extremely popular throughout the whole movement right you know it was about uh, ending police uh, brutality it was about uh, ending the extradition bill but lastly the five demand was about uh, genuine democracy right now right so i think that statement was powerful in terms of uh, even though the occupation was not successful on the night it left uh, kind of several concrete demand and basically uh, change the, the trajectory of the later movement in a much more concrete direction, right? People know what our demands are. And uh, so, yeah. And were the police arriving? When when you left the Ledge Co, were mm. the police there? Or did you have to slip out? Um, yep. What happened? Uh, basically, the police were gathering around the... Uh, Admiralty area, they were very well prepared. And once the clock started to midnight after 11.59, they started the direction, right? They immediately fired rounds and rounds of tear gas. They basically cleared the whole Admiralty and people around the the legislative complex, right? So when I I left the chamber basically at around 11.45, I, I can already see, you know, the police are coming, right? So people are leaving at that time. Uh, people were running for their lives and you know the whole legislative council was like clear I think in maybe a, an hour or so right so it was an extremely fast and a little bit chaotic uh, you know uh, exit right and Anthony told me that some protesters actually had to be carried out that they really didn't want to leave that occupation right. is that is that yep, true yep. Yep, there are four protesters who were very insistent that they have to 
they want to die inside the chamber. They don't want to leave. They want to die inside the chamber, and then they basically uh, remain inside the chamber uh, on their own. And it led to another episode that was extremely touching. Was that you know a group of protesters decide that we have to rescue them, right? You know, it was the idea of in Cantonese it would be "一个都不能少," right?、Uh, English translation it would be "we can't even leave out one person. We can't leave out even single、uh, a single protester, right?" So the idea is like there is a rescue team formed immediately after people exit the chamber. There is a rescue team. Going inside the electrical、uh, and rescue the four, you know,、uh, protesters who insist that they have to remain right. So they were basically being physically removed, like they were like kind of people drag them in and force them to leave the electrical, right? So they basically were able to leave. Everyone was able to leave safely before the arrival of the police, right? So it was another extremely touching and emotional episode inside the legislative chamber, right, where it kind of formulated the, the spirit and the Camaraderie of you know we can't leave out a single protester, right? We have to enter as one, and we have to leave as one. And these next hours must have been bizarre for you because your your voice and your face go around the world in in the next day.、Um, what was that like? Well, I think I was surprised by how much sympathy that we drew, right? I, I was again, you know, the whole motivation of the the, the the my action was really about the division that I envisioned, right? The 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 bitter criticism that we would get immediately, right? Not only from the government side, but also from within, right? People kind of protesters would accuse one another of, you know, you are trying to kind of drag us into.、Uh, The end of the movement, right? You are trying to end the whole movement by acting irrationally, right? So I was actually expecting a lot of bitter criticism and expecting a lot of internal division, right? But it turns out to be not the case because people, after you know, partly because of what we have done, partly because of the the rescue episode that I mentioned, people are emotionally. Deeply sympathetic towards the protester, right? They know that we are actually young people. They know that we are actually protester, just like them. They know that we act out of frustration and anger. They know that it's because the government has been so is、uh, not responsive, right? The amount of sympathy and emotional resonance and tears and that we drew was truly surprising to me, right? I was so surprised by the fact that you know we still maintain our solidarity after the incident, right? It was the exactly outcome that I hoped for, but I do not think that it will happen, right? So、uh, it was not about the kind of the publicity that I got that surprised me. It's really about the 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 solidarity that we can hold on to that really touches me. Well, your face had been revealed by the decision to remove the mask, and you you were obviously at risk of arrest from that point. Did you feel like you had to move quickly in terms of leaving Hong Kong? And, and what did you do that night? You know, again,、uh, the whole episode was so spontaneous, was so in the moment that I didn't really have time to think about the potential consequences. Right. I think at that point I decided that I need some space and time to kind of reflect upon what just happened, what is the potential consequences, what is my option, right? So, so at that point,、uh, I did not remain in Hong Kong for a very long period of time, and I know that you know I have to find a place where I have the、uh, space and time to think through、uh, what should I do next, right? So, 
I know consequences will, will be coming, right? Either in the form of imprisonment or either in the form of exile. But at that point, you know, uh, what we really care about is, again, the movement, right? So, but I do need certain time and space to think through my, 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 my decision and options. And how long did you take to do that? How, how long was it between the July 1st events and you leaving the country? It was not, I would say in a very short period of time, I have to make a very quick decision, right? So I make the decision that I have to leave Hong Kong uh, for for uh, better time and space to think through the decision. So I didn't, uh, it, it was in a very short period of time that I, have to, that I have to think about, maybe I have to leave Hong Kong. And did you get out on a normal flight or did you, was there a sort of a tale of adventure where you got across uh to a different location. Can you tell any of that story? Well, I, I think the, 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 the main point is I, I'm, I, I was safe later on, right? You know, I end up, uh, I end up in the American, in the United States where I uh, previously had my uh, graduate study here, right? So uh, several months later, I reappear in some public event in, in the United States where I joined uh, Joshua and others in the advocacy effort in the East Coast. So yeah. I end up in the America, and and you're you're in Seattle at University of Washington. Is there risk to you still talking to me and and continuing your role as an activist? Is do you, do you worry about these things even though you're no longer in Chinese territory? Absolutely. Uh, now uh, the the national security law has been passed in June, where Chinese government basically allow protested to be arrested for behaviors that are that occur outside of their jurisdiction right so for example uh samuel chu uh, from hong kong democracy council who is uh, a major player in our efficacy effort who is also a, a u.s citizen right was wanted by the hong kong government using the new national security law because of his activity and involvement in the United States, right? So actually people could be caught for behaviors that is not happening uh, within Hong Kong or China, right? So a lot of protesters have been wanted, Nathan Law included, for their international efficacy effort, right? So for myself, what I'm saying here, what I continue to speak, what I continue to participate, actually could have very serious ramification, right? I could be caught under the new national security law, especially uh, you know, with the uh, new criminal offense of uh, cooperating with uh, foreign interference or uh, foreign forces, right? It's a very wide and arbitrary crime uh, whenever you engage in, in, engage in activity with foreign uh, players such as uh, officials or NGOs, you can be caught under the new national security law. So, so, and how do you feel about Hong Kong at the moment, and the state of the movement, and the relationship with China, and and maybe the ongoing relationship with China? Where do, where do you think this will end up? Well, I think uh, there's no question. I think the the momentum is acting against us, right? I think we enter in a new era where we are facing extremely draconian persecution from the government, right? Uh, that everyone who are involved in the 2019 movement will be punished 
they will be persecuted, they will be sent to jail, right? So I think now it's really the winter for Hong Kong civil society where a lot of protester citizens are actually paying a huge price for their past involvement, right? So it's no doubt it's really hard now on the ground to mobilize people again because, you know, when even if you chant a slogan, you will be caught under the new law, right? Even if you protest, you can be uh, accused of rioting, right? You know, it's extremely dire in, in Hong Kong right now. I think, you know, on the ground, people really find it uh, difficult to kind of mobilize against, right? Uh, but I think I have hope towards the future that you know, we pull off a movement that was unthinkable in 2019, right? Nobody think that we can kind of pull off such a extraordinary movement for a, a very substantive period of time, right? So to me, it's really about keeping a faith in civil society, right? That we are not just going to uh, lose hope and then do nothing, right? Actually, there are a lot of... Uh, actors and activists who are still continuing the effort by building organization, by circulating uh, information, by by strategizing around new campaign and new initiative, right? So I hope that if we can weather this winter, right, if we can go through this winter, maybe it will take five years, maybe it will take a decade, right? We can re-energize our civil society once again, uh, especially when the government now is a really, you know, in a... Uh, in a dominant position, right? They can basically do whatever they want. Uh, but I think, you know, as long as we keep hope, as long as we keep on our effort, especially on the international front, where we keep telling the story of Hong Kong, we keep pushing for uh, substantive legislation uh, that will be passed in different jurisdictions. I think that the moment for us to uh, re-mobilize will be, will be there, right? So I've, I've hoped that we have to be resilient and we will survive. Well, Brian, I want to say thank you for speaking to me. It's been a, a fascinating chat and it's a speech, you know, of all the speeches we featured on the podcast, this is the one that was in the moment and it was truly brave and it's quite exhilarating to watch. So, look, congratulations on that speech and all the best with the future. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you want to support me, there are books for sale at tonywilson.com.au. 1989, The Great Grand Final, or The Cow Tripped Over the Moon, or Humpty Dumpty Sat on the Slide. You can search online at your favourite bookstore or you can send me an email tony at tonywilson.com.au and I'll post you a signed copy. It is time for the speech of the week and it is of course Brian Leung's speech as the unmasked protester in the Ledgeco building on the 1st of July 2019. The speech was delivered in Cantonese and I thought the best way to listen to it would be to play it in its original form in Cantonese without any English overdub, just so that we can get a sense of Brian as an orator without any sort of interference. The Cantonese audio will last a little over two minutes and then straight afterwards I'll play the English translation overdubbed. But here it is, Brian Leung, activist, seizing his moment. 
就会听日变成 TVB 口中嘅暴徒，佢哋会影呢个立法会里面嘅颓垣败瓦，一片凌乱，指责我哋系暴徒。所以而家我哋成个运动系冇得割席，我哋要赢就一齐继续赢落去，要输我哋就要输十年。我哋成个公民社会，我哋成个公民社会系会有十年永不翻身。我哋嘅学生会被捕，我哋嘅领袖会被捕。所以今次。我哋要贏，就一定要一齊贏。如果你能夠佔領嘅話，你考慮清楚能夠佔領嘅話，同我哋一齊佔領呢度。我哋呢度越多人，我哋呢度越多人，我哋就越安全。佢冇辦法喺度放催淚彈，我哋會死㗎。佢冇辦法喺度用警棍驅散我哋一千個人，係咪？呼籲出面嘅朋友，如果能夠佔領嘅，入嚟呢度同我哋佔領，因為我哋冇得返轉頭，我哋遭到呢一步，我哋冇得玩快閃㗎啦。呢一刻我哋唔係玩快閃。因為佔領立法會係一世嘅只有一次嘅機會，我哋冇得再翻轉頭。所以如果你能夠有能力嘅話，佔領呢度；冇能力嘅話，你可以用和理非嘅方式包圍成個立法會，用你嘅身體保護我哋，係咪？我哋真係冇得再輸。如果我哋今晚翻去開冷氣瞓覺，第二朝香港冇事發生過，一個月嘅犧牲完全付諸東流。我哋係咪上過三條人命，好多日嘅血汗，我哋就咁樣付出，白白浪費。我哋真係冇得再輸。如果呼籲出面嘅同學唔好再野餐。唔好再快閃！我哋入嚟一齊佔領太陽花學運動，連學生佔領咗之後，大人和李飛領袖立法會議員喺出口保護我哋㗎。所以我哋學生，我哋首先唔好諗住其他東西，我哋一定要足夠嘅手足、足夠嘅朋友，有嗰份嘅勇氣一齊進入呢個會議廳。我哋越多人呢度就越安全。我除低口罩係因為想俾大家知道，其實我哋香港人真係冇得再輸㗎啦。我哋香港人真係唔可以再輸。當我哋再輸係十年，你諗住十年，我哋公民社會就會一塵八踩。你政府，So here it is, read in English translation by a journalism graduate here in Melbourne by the name of Wing Kuang, who's worked for Sin Media and the SMH and the Guardian as well. Some people broke into the Legislative Council building despite the risk to their lives paved the way for us to come inside. If we retreat, we will become the rioters tomorrow, as TVB will coin us. They will be filming the destruction and mass in the Lacco building, condemning us as rioters. Thus, now we can't be separated in this movement anymore. If we are to win, we win it together. If lost, we lose ten years. Our entire civil society will not recover from this the next ten years. Our students will be arrested. Our leaders will be arrested. So this time, if we are to win, we must win together. If you could stay in the occupy, if you have considered carefully that you can stay in the occupy, join us to occupy here. The more people we have here, the safer we will be. The police can't fire tear gas here. We will die from it. They can't disperse a thousand of us from here using batons, right? Let's urge people outside who can join the occupy to come in and join us, because there's no return for us anymore since we took this step. It can't be a flash mob anymore. This moment, we are not doing a flash mob because it's a once-in-a-lifetime chance to occupy the legislative council. We are at a point of no return. So if you have the ability, stay and occupy here. If not, you can surround the lacko in a peaceful manner using your body to protect us. Okay, we can't lose anymore. If we go back and sleep in the air corn room tonight, tomorrow morning nothing will have happened in Hong Kong. Sacrifices made the past month would be in vain. Do we want the three lost lives, the blood and sweat we shed for many days, to be wasted for nothing? We can't lose anymore. I urge students outside not have picnics anymore. 
Do not do flash mob anymore. Come in and join us in the occupy. In the sunflower students' movements, after students occupied, adults, leaders advocating for peace, legislative council members were at the entrance to protest them. Therefore, we as students first do not be distracted. We need to have enough brothers and sisters, enough friends with the courage to come into the chamber together. The more people we have, the safer it is here. The reason why I removed my mask is to let everyone know that we Hong Kongers have nothing more to lose. Hong Kongers can't lose anymore. If we lose again, it's ten years. Think about it. It's ten years. Our civil society would sink to the bottom. The government then. 试问谁还未发声？都写我期，谁为我成？天生有权，还有心可作主，谁要认命今生？试问谁能未觉醒？听真那自由才奏明，激起才能为背的那份良知和应，为何？I don't think our outro music can compete with this one this week. I want to say some big thank yous to Anthony Dapparan, author of City on Fire: The Fight for Hong Kong, to Brian Leung himself. Thank you so much for taking the time and for having the courage to speak to me about such an important moment in your life and in the life of Hong Kong. Thank you to Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados for the continued support of the podcast. Thank you to Wing Kuang who read the English translation of Brian's speech, and my thoughts and best wishes go to everyone who's been involved in the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement. As Brian said, it may be winter at the moment, but at some point the snows will melt and the sun will rise again. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time. Trust.